the Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Thank you, Mr. Craig, for coming on Black White Mass Incarceration Show, being a guest and just kind of sharing your experience, basically, you know, how you got incarcerated, what you experienced during incarceration, and your success story, because I consider you a success story, and I think that that needs to be uplifted. I don't think we have a lot, enough success stories that are uplifted of how people can come home and, you know, be a living, productive citizen and how... You can't rehabilitate yourself in prison. It's something you have to do, but it's something that can be done. So if you would just want to start out by giving us your name and just giving us a little background about you. Absolutely. So thanks for having me, Sierra. My name is Craig Waleed. I happen to have a doctor's degree, so some people call me Dr. Waleed, depending on where I am. But I insist that uh, the everyday people just refer to me as Craig because I am Craig. I am with the people. I'm from the people. I'm originally from Rochester, New York. I served four to 12 years sentence um, from 1990 to 1997 for a violent assault crime that I committed. Um, after getting out of prison in uh, 97, I dedicated myself to higher education and to uh, working in the community, trying to set an uh, example for other uh, people who are on the margins, i.e. those who have been incarcerated, those who are on parole, probation, and just have rehabilitative involvement. On some level. How old were you when you were incarcerated? That's a great question. Yeah, I was 19 when I went in. And when I came out, I was 27, going on 28. So, kind of just give us some background on what was going on as a man, 19 years old. Were you in New York at that time? Yeah, I was in New York at that time. I was born and raised in New York for the last uh, three years. I've been in North Carolina for a year and a half. But what was happening for me? I grew up in a single-parent home, and my mother was working a lot. And so my sister, who's 13 years older than me, provided me um, with a lot of the pre- uh, primary care that I needed. Uh, but my sister was just 13, so, you know, you can imagine, you know, she can't do as an adult. Right? So mom was working, so we always had a house, always had a car, we were never hungry, lights were never off, but I didn't have consistent supervision. And during the time that my sister couldn't watch me, you know, my mother would leave me with neighbors who were babysitting or some relatives. In the event or during that time of going in between people who were not directly um, in my immediate family, I experienced a number of sexual assaults, emotional assaults um, before I was like three years old. So, you know, as I'm coming of age, uh, I guess whatever emotions, emotional disruption even occurred for me, um, that was never addressed. You know, my family, I guess they knew about it, but didn't know how to address it. So I just was allowed to just continue to grow. Growing and so a crooked tree would grow when someone leans on it when it's young. It doesn't grow up straight. So I'm growing crooked and I'm growing. You know, I'm getting fatter and bigger and stronger, but I'm growing crooked. So, yeah, so as I got older, I began to um, express a lot of those pent up um, and repressed emotions that, again, I didn't realize I had. So I engaged in a lot of uh, violence, um, other types of crimes, burglaries, robberies, um, assaults. Very promiscuous. Um, what else? Uh, very high risk taking. 
have anything to live for before I ended up getting high. You know, I, I was getting high and everything happened in my head. Um, just to numb the pain. Yeah, just to numb the pain. But again, I didn't realize it was numb the pain. It was just, I guess, trying to live up to the, the uh, stereotypical images that I understood that a black boy or a black man could be, you know, which was dishonest and, you know, um, inconsistent. Slick and conniving, willing to break the law and navigate violence or perpetuate violence. And so I was just, I was the epitome of what that looked like at the age of 19. And I'm sure it was, it was hard being 19 and being on the streets of New York because New York is rough. It's not, you know, it's, it's a rough place for somebody young and black. And then experience. Well, but let me back you up a little bit because I was not in New York City. New York City is a whole different beast. I was in a, a city called Rochester, New York, which is like north of New York City. It's about, about a seven-hour car drive, six-hour car drive. But don't get it twisted. It's still rough, you know, because the kids are out there. They're killing all the time. You know, poverty is rampant. Um, it's a tough place to be. Um, but it's a different shock to be in these five boroughs. But still, just being in the streets, being out in the community, not taking care of myself like I'm supposed to be, it's still rough. Can you speak on how childhood trauma has a lot to do with people committing crimes and it's not just, hey, I want to go and rob somebody or kill somebody, but it's because of the social, emotional, that you don't know how to control and that a lot of, especially in the black communities, we don't understand the importance of social and emotional control, whether, you know, your parents just didn't learn it or, you know, what their bringing up was, but how trauma really affects a lot of people when they are committing crimes. And it's not just a wake up on a limb and say, hey, let me go commit this crime. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I think you just spoke to it. I'll just confirm it, you know, in my experience, in my personal lived experience, as well as what I may have researched. You know, the vast majority of people who find themselves in state prison have um, in their background adverse childhood experiences. What we know as AIDS, you know, adverse childhood experiences. These are the traumatic experiences that happen to children before they're like 18 years old. And so I definitely had them. Lots of people that I've talked to, they have them, they feel that they have them. And again, as I illustrated earlier, I was growing like this crooked tree. So every time, you know, a young person has some sort of trauma in their life, it kind of bends them to the left, to the right. Emotional, psychological self, you know, so that they, their development is stymied or, or, or slowed down. So ultimately, we, we don't act like, um, it, which would mean that, you know, we're not empathetic to others' causes of others. Oftentimes, we're um, more defensive and more hostile, acting out in ways to either protect myself or just to be in my best interest. At least that's my experience. So I'm not speaking from a clinical perspective, but just from a perspective of. What I've seen, yeah, most of us who find ourselves in prison oftentimes are selfish, you know, and we're afraid, you know, and I think we're afraid from those early childhood traumas, you know, we don't want to experience the trauma, whatever it was. Right. So walk us through, like, what was the experience of being a 19-year-old in an upstate prison? Yeah, it was scary for me, you know, it was very scary. I was a big kid, and a lot of people that I ran into in the county jails, um, etc., 
something. You, know, you don't have nothing to worry about. You're a big dude. You just carry yourself appropriately. And so that's what I did. I carried myself appropriately. I didn't get involved in my BS or anything. But a lot of BS happened around me. You know, just being sent to prison in and of itself was a very violent action. You know, being torn away from your community, torn away from whatever you know to be stability. And then to be stripped of your identity as an incarcerated person, you know, because now you're given a state number, and that's what you refer to by that state number. Maybe your last name, but your number is really your last name. And then whatever clothes and jewelry you thought you wore to set yourself apart, no, now you wear this prison uniform. And, you know, if you don't have a bald head like me, we're going to shave all your hair off, you know, and shave your face, you know, and give you a uh, fresh start. So they break a person down, but then they don't do anything to try to build them back up. And so that breaking down process, I think, was traumatic in and of itself. Having to uh, endure strip searches where your body cavity is out, you know, explored, you know, um, that's very dehumanizing. So um, it, was a, it was scary and traumatic for me going in. Uh, but once I learned to navigate the waters, should I say, of penitentiary politics and penitentiary yard and mess hall or whatever, um, I found that. I was able to um, dedicate myself to developing myself, you know, on the inside, on the inside, so that when I get when I get outside, my outside and inside will shine. And I'm sure by you saying that you have had some sexual abuse as a child, and then going into prison and having to deal with the body search cavities and things of that nature, that was that was extra trauma, right? Absolutely. And you know, the thing is, is I initially realized how much trauma I had. So I started reading various books, self-improvement books, and some of the authors talked about, you know, childhood trauma, and it allowed me to start reflecting in my own head, in my own way about my own life, and, you know, that's when the healing began, I began to heal, because I began to acknowledge the trauma, I began to acknowledge the violations, and um, began to really look at myself and ask myself, how did you end up here, and what do you need to do to avoid coming and it all boils down really to my, my thinking. My thinking had been screwed up from early, you know. And so now I was at age to recognize that my thinking was a bit screwed up, and it was up to me to fix it out. You know, um, to quote Bob Marley, um, who quoted um, Marcus Messiah Garvey, you know, they said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Because none but ourselves can free our minds. And so it was up to me to free my mind. I had to know what my bondage was, and I had to figure out how to couldn't look for a pie in the sky or for a place to be well. I had to save myself. Well, let me piggyback on that. What advice would you have for people that's currently incarcerated not to be mentally enslaved? They already have your body autonomy enslaved, but a lot of people let them mentally enslave them. So if they do get a chance to come home, a lot of them don't want to come home because they've just been so mentally enslaved and used to the routine of prison. So what would be some good advice for people who are currently incarcerated not to let them mentally enslave you? And so this might sound cliche what I'm going to say, but it's real. And that is to know thyself. It's important to know and understand who you are and not to, to uh, accept the false labels and false identities that are superimposed upon us. You know, because oftentimes, especially... I find when I'm working with black men and I'm sitting with black men that um, there's a, a certain type of stereotype that many of us want to portray. You know, it's like this box. And everything that a black man is belongs inside 
dare to live outside of this box. You're a black masculinity to me, no question. So I think, you know, really understanding who you are, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, understanding what you want out of this life, and figuring out how to get it. Because if not, then other folks can tell you who you are, tell you what you want, and tell you how to get it. But it don't serve you, it serves them. So true knowledge itself, that's what I call knowledge itself. I know myself, I'm truly educated, you know, not trained, but I do. I think it's important for people to get trained too. And when I say training, I'm talking about going to school, earning a GED, a high school diploma, a certification, a college degree, something where you can become um, um, certified, license, or degree, whatever it is that you love doing. And I mentioned that because when I started taking academic courses while I was incarcerated, it was like not only was I gaining academic training, but my brain started, I could almost feel it and see it, like my brain was making connections that I otherwise wouldn't make, which allowed me to grasp new and different information outside of what was just presented in the classroom, you know, and so my brain was healing as I engaged in these academic um, and vocational programs, so get academic training, you know, get knowledge itself, and knowledge itself is true education, because that's when the, the educer range when you are bringing up that which is latent, and that's when you're truly educated. I agree. I agree. And not to let them make you think that because you're incarcerated, for one, you're never going home because you never know when the floodgates can open. Two, right. that you are what the state says you are. You're never what the state says you are. You are who you want to be. And you can always be better and do better, but you got to find your purpose and your passion. And sometimes going to prison Absolutely. does set you down to find your purpose and your passion, but you really got to, you got to, as I tell my husband, elevate yourself above the environment that you're in. You can always elevate yeah. your mind and take yourself out of prison. Your body might yeah. not be gone, but your mind can yeah. always be elevated past prison. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's the I principle I talk about, you know, intellect over emotion. And, you know, when you talk about that, you know, elevating beyond prison, that was part of my experience. I found myself almost transcending the prison environment, you know, and it was like I'm walking above my body most days, looking at my body. I'm so in my head, so in my spirit, so in my heart that a lot of those what happened in eight years could not penetrate me anymore, you know, because I, I found the focus, I found my purpose, and I knew I was getting out. So oftentimes I was envisioning my life outside of the penitentiary mm -hmm. while I was in the penitentiary. So, yeah, I, I transcended it. I had claimed all of my successes even before they came. You got to manifest it. I think that's what's important to not let them have you stagnant in your past and what you did to get there, but to elevate yourself past what you can do to get yourself out and know that you can. And not just the prison does that too, though, Sierra. Also, you know, our, our broader community does that. The community holds you hostage to your, to your criminal past. You know, so oftentimes, once you're convicted, you're forever condemned. Or thrown away. You know, America just likes to throw people away. Like, that's it. No yeah. second chances, no nothing. You committed this one offense, exactly. and then that's it. Like, they don't commit, you know, things that they shouldn't right. do. Right. Well, think about this, too. In doing that, especially in this day and age, a, a vital workforce is being tossed away. You know, because yeah. many people who are in prison, they're brilliant, they're capable, they want to learn, they want to live legitimately. But for whatever reason, they ended up on the wrong side of the track, you know. So I think it's better to give people a 
appropriate job training, appropriate medical and psychological tra uh, uh, treatment while they are incarcerated. Because in the long run, it costs us, the taxpayers, less money. Yes, and I think that's what people need to understand, that it's our tax money that is being taken to um, provide for people that are incarcerated when instead of us putting that money back into our communities, building the villages that we have let the government tear down, that, that's what's important, is having the resources in the community so people don't have to go to incarceration. And as wow. you know now, that mental health is so horrible out here that they've shut down majority of the mental health hospitals, especially in North Carolina. So they're using prisons and jails as mental health hospitals, and we know that that's where nobody with any type of mental health needs to be. And that's all across the country, mm -hmm. that, this phenomenon that you would mention about uh, mental health treatment uh, facilities being shut down. Um, so it's interesting that you mentioned that because during my time in the 90s when I was serving time in prison, one of the prisons that I was in had been converted from a psychiatric ward into an immediate support prison. Yeah. I think about this for you. It costs more money to incarcerate a person for years than it does say, to put them in treatment or to send them to a high relief college. Right. It costs $31,000 a year. And it's probably higher than that now that we have inflation to take care of one person incarcerated. And you have North Carolina has over what, over 20,000, 30,000 people incarcerated, probably more than that. So you wow. add up how many, and then on top of the ones that have health care problems, you know what I'm saying, the ones right. who have diabetes. Right. and So that's even more that we're spending to keep them incarcerated when they could be at home. I mean, if you're that sick, what do you need to be incarcerated for? Right, right, right. So. You know, most deaf said it in one of his rhymes, and you might have heard me say this before, Anybody else that is listening to me might have heard me say this before, but I quote uh, Moses' song, uh, I think it's uh, mathematics. And, you know, he said, the killing fields need blood to graze the cash cash. It's a number game, but the shit don't add up somehow. Right. You know? Right. And so the prison is the cash cow, you know? And, and, and the blood is the poor and marginalized people that they continue to capture and put in there on trumped up charges and, you know, all this other crap. You know, mass incarceration is a mess. You know? Yeah. It targets well, you know, they want to keep us enslaved somehow, some way, because of, you know, how it was 400 years ago. And that's that's why everything has led up to where it is now, was to continue slavery, because as everybody remember, we just got rid of chattel slavery, not right. actual slavery in itself. And so right. allowing right. the 13th Amendment to still stand says that, okay, well, we can slave black people, Mexicans. If you're white and you're poor, they enslave you too. So it's, you know, now it's not just black people, it's, it's anybody who was of the poor community, you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. You see, uh, with these uh, just past midterms, some states, I can't remember what states, but some states had slavery on the ballot. It was in slavery. Louisiana, Tennessee, Vermont, and one more I'm missing. But yeah, um, I think Alabama. Yeah, they were the ones that voted to keep it, but they were going to change that they don't have to force them to work. Um, if they didn't want to work, then they wouldn't, you know, take their privileges and things of that nature. But, yeah. <laughs> right. So, speaking of, um, tell us, well, I know you said that you've spent some time in solitary confinement. Tell us what that was like. Yeah, so uh, I was sent to solitary confinement on two separate occasions. Both times I spent about 30, 35 days in solitary confinement. Each time I wasn't guilty. Uh, one time there was a riot that happened in the dormitory. They just came and swept people. They just took half of the dormitory and just happened to get swept up in 
And another time, um, I was accused of inciting the riot that was on the, the um, anniversary of Attica, the Attica uprising in New York. I don't know about other places, but in New York, for instance, the anniversary of the uprising, people do a silent protest, go inside the cafeteria, get the food, get the uh, silverware, dump the food, um, return the silverware, and walk out. And in my first year, Somebody explained that to me on this day. And so I went and I told other people, and I was overheard by a CEO sharing that information. So they scooped me up and put me in the box because I was sent to the bottom of the floor. How long did you spend in the box? Yeah, each time about 30 days, maybe a little bit more. You know, after like maybe two, two weeks, three weeks, it was getting to me. You know, it was getting to me. Tell us, what, tell us what a day like, what it is to spend just one day in that box. Because I don't think some people know. You know, some people might think, oh, I could do a day. Maybe you can. But as those days pile on and it's the same old routine every day, it starts to to chip away at one's mental fortitude. At least it did for me. I know it does for lots of other people. And one room, one cell that I was in, um, there was this really skinny window, maybe like four inches, I don't know, a foot long on the door of the cell, but it was all like had barbed wire, just kind of meshy, so you couldn't see out it clearly. But then that window faced another window that went outside where sunlight was coming through. The window was so foggy and dirty, I couldn't see out. And I really couldn't experience any sunlight. But each day, it's the same old routine. In, in, a, in a room the size of, say, a regular bathroom the size of, a parking space, a handicapped parking space. It's not really big. Um, you can't do much with pace, um, do push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, crunches, read if I could get my hand on some reading material, um, and eat. So I, I tended to count the hours by when the meals were served, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And I didn't come outside those 30 days both times because, one, you know, they put you out of a dog kennel to come outside. Um, that's just very dehumanizing. And then, two, they would come by at like four in the morning, you know, knocking at the cell door saying, hey, you want, you want your outside time? I'm trying to sleep. You know, I'm trying to escape. Sleep was escape. So I slept in those 30 days. Did a lot of reading, a lot of pacing, a lot of exercise. In so many words, the, wa the walls start talking to you after so many days of being in an all white cell with nothing but um, some some cells don't even have beds they just have a mattress some don't even have that you have your toilet some don't even have a toilet some don't even have a toilet they have a hole in the toilet right I didn't even know that so see listen <laughs> that that's that's so yeah. inhumane um right inhumane once you my like that right and then you can't have any contact with the outside world for thirty days yeah so right so that's is there anybody coming to say, hey, are you mentally okay? Do you need to talk to somebody? I don't remember that. I remember maybe the nurse being on the tier and handing out medication, but no one getting any acute care or acute attention. Um, yeah, and the only contact you might have, one might have, is with the person in the cell next to you on either side because you can speak through the vents or you can speak through the toilet. But yeah, there's really no contact, and you could be right next to somebody for 
however long you're in a cell and never even see that person. Mm -hmm. And I know that you you were able to mentally hold it together, but I'm sure you heard other people on the cell block like banging and screaming and just basically losing their minds. Yeah, that, that happened often. You know, people banging, screaming, losing their minds. Some people had already lost it in one. And so to shut them up, the CEO would go in and beat them up, you know, and maybe pepper spray them, whatever. You know, I've seen that once, you know, but I've seen, well, I should I say I heard it because I couldn't see it. I was in the cell, but I could tell it was happening. This one guy's always screaming gate, yelling, screaming, banging, shaking the door, whatever you could do, you know, fussing at the police when they walk by. But I guess eventually they got tired of him. They went there to beat his ass, you know. And then he cried on him, you know. So the next morning I didn't hear him. I don't know what happened. That's 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 just so inhumane. You're you're punishing somebody because they're literally losing their mind because they're in a tiny parking spot cell with no communication or contact with the outside world. We're humans. We were born to have physical and emotional contact. You know what I mean? So right. Relationships with each other. Right. That's how we know ourselves. Exactly. Um, and so to deprive that, to try to say, oh, I'm going to teach you a lesson, or that's not a lesson to be taught. That is torture. Like, that's what yeah. the whole is, is torture. It's not to discipline anybody or say, hey, I won't do that again. Like, no, that's... Right. You know, that's... that's and then it's with you. Yeah. That experience that will stick with you for the rest of your life. I know it sticks with me. It's not as strong. You know, I've been out over 20 years now, but uh, certain things will trigger it. You know, lots of keys. If I hear lots of keys, it might throw me back into that, that hole. You know, I don't watch that shit on TV either. I don't like prison movies and all that. Don't watch it. Right. You know, cop shows and all that. Mm-mm. Too traumatized. I'll be so up. Yeah, I'll be so up. I just need to sleep. No, I'm going to jump the window with my so what you have, what you're describing is post-traumatic prison disorder, which I don't think people know that's a oh, thing, yes. but that's a thing. Like, that's a true thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And even before that was coined, you know, I was um, telling people, I believe I have post-traumatic stress disorder, and I would compare it to some of the symptoms I've seen in some of my friends who were, like, in Desert Storm, you know, who were Marines and whatnot. And I could see some of their behavior, and I'm like, yeah, I, I got the same thing. I think they people think that... PTSD is just only for people who go to war, but any traumatic event that happens over and over and over forms PTSD. I have it. I have complex PTSD. So mm-hmm. it's, it's rough. It's nothing to, yeah. to play with. And then, and then some people don't even realize it. I mean, just like growing up poor, that can cause trauma. Generational you know? trauma. Right. Yeah. You know, and people suffer from that. Seeing your parents is strung out on drugs, you know, not having food in yeah. All that stuff, being emotionally uh, abused. You know, but folks, folks don't see it. You know, it hasn't been until recently that it's really been accepted as uh, somewhat of, I guess you call it, the invisible disease. You know, it's not invisible. America made it very, no, not at all. <laughs> very face forefront. It's not invisible at all by no means. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, Craig, tell us about your success and how you were able to get out. And as you said, you have your doctorates, and you're doing big things out here. Let us, tell us how you were able to be successful, and then let us know how other people can do the same thing. Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Andrea. And so, you know, everything started for me on the inside while I was inside. And so what I mean is I began to 
shaped my thinking. You know, I, I read a lot. One of the books that was very key um, and instrumental in my transformation was the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alice Haley. And I saw that Malcolm was able to then transition into his life, and he was a soul brother just like me. So I said, if he can do it, I can do it. That doesn't mean I want to be a minister or a preacher or anything, but I need to change my life. So if Malcolm did it, I can do it. So I spent a lot of time reading, reading um, books about people who overcame obstacles. I also read official books on all types of subjects and topics. That was one thing, just reading, building up my, my, my cognitive muscle. Um, but then also, as I indicated earlier, I started uh, taking college courses. I was also teaching in general education classes um, and engaging in this cognitive work, this, this strengthening my, my the receptivity in my, in my brain. But also I began to envision what I wanted my life to be like um, when I got out. So one of the things that I envisioned was that I would go other guys are dropping the seeds on me, calling me doctor, calling me professor, because um, I spent so much time studying in the scientific that I never saw myself becoming a doctor or a professor. Um, I wanted to work with my people uh, who were like me, who had trauma, who had drug addiction, you know, who were in and out of prison, jail, mental health courts, and all that. So when I got out, um, I went to school and earned an associate, I mean, a bachelor's degree in, in uh, health science as part of my internship allowed me to be a um, substance abuse counselor at the same place that I was mandated to go on parole. So I did a lot of work there as a substance abuse counselor and as a reentry counselor and case manager. Um, but I always saw myself as a teacher. So I picked up teaching while I was in prison. And so um, once I, I completed my master's degree in mental health counseling, I picked up a teaching job at the same college that I graduated from in the same program.
you know, being a citizen of the community. And so... And those are the stories that we need to highlight more. Shows like yours, shows like mine, which I think that's what we do to highlight those stories. Because if we don't highlight ourselves, clearly power won't be there. And so we have to change the narrative. It's all about narrative shifting. Um, Absolutely. And, and showing that people are still humanized, that they're still humans, no matter whether they purposely committed that crime or whether they committed the crime out of just desperation or emotional state of mind where they're not in a good emotional state of mind. That's where a lot of people make bad decisions. And that's because America has Absolutely. not done a good job about mental health. They feel like um, if you go and take a bunch of medication and go talk to somebody, that that's going to help. But it's a lot more to it than just that, as you know and I know. Um, and so that's why I have become a big advocate of mental health and trying to change mental health, especially in the prisons and in North Carolina, because it's important that you self-regulate your mental health. Absolutely. And that's that emotional intelligence piece, you know. But in order to, to, to do that, I think people have to have the right environment to help them support them in, in that uh, quest. You know, I think about uh, botanical lights, uh, trees, plants, things of that nature. If we put them in the wrong soil, um, they won't grow. You know, and the soil is the environment. We put them in rich soil, and they'll grow. They might grow exponentially because they have the right soil and the right support. So it's important for us to get the right support. And unfortunately, because many of us who find ourselves in prison and jail are coming from um, situations of depravity, um, it's very difficult for us to know what the supportive system looks like or feels like or even know that we need it. So we end up going back to that which we know and continuing the cycle. But it's up to each of us, you know, none but ourselves can free our minds. So we have to we have to be willing to, to and I'm gonna use the words you use, work. Because it's work. And it's hard work. Mm -hmm. it's very hard and work. It's painful work. And it's painful yeah. too. Very you know? painful. Um it, it, it makes you come to, you know, a lot of realizations that you probably wouldn't normally. And a lot of people don't like facing those. Because it's, it's right. painful, it hurts. So, um, if somebody would have told me some of these things about myself, or somebody else would have said some of these things to me about myself that I realized, I might have wanted to fight them. Right. And I think sometimes a lot of people want help, but they don't know where to go or don't know where to start. Some people just don't know where to start, you know? And that's true, so, too. And I think that's part of it, you know, um, holding one of the holy books, you know, uh, said, you know, my people suffer because they lack knowledge. You know, you know, that's true. You know, if people don't know, they don't know where to go, how to begin. Um, and I think that's a big piece, too. You know, we've got to be willing to look for the information, ask for the information. We have to slay our egos, too. You know, because our ego gets in the way so many times. Our pride gets in the way so many times. And help is right there waiting for us just to drop our ego. Yeah. Drop our pride. You know, but that's, that's, those are big things to do, too. Because human beings, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our sense of self. But if we can humble ourselves, I think that's when we will begin to grow again. I think so. And yeah, just, you know, especially when you grow up in certain situations, that pride and that ego is what gets you through a day. Because sometimes, you know, some kids got to survive. You know what I mean? Families, yeah. kids, yeah. moms, dads. So sometimes that ego is what gets you through. But then at the end of the day, it can also be your downfall. A lot of times it's your downfall. And you can't be humble. Pride, you know what I mean? Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before the fall. And so it's, it's about finding that balance again, you know. And it's in time that we find balance. I have a 10-year-old kid, 
a beautiful boy. He's intelligent. He's trying to find his balance. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times he overdoses or underdoses. And then he gets frustrated with himself. And I'm telling him, he has to just keep working at it, man. He'll get it. He'll get it. He's got balance. Balance is everything. It is. That's what I have to tell my um 16-year-old. Because, you know, he just, he gets unbalanced. And when he gets unbalanced, then he gets really frustrated. And he starts to down himself. And... Yeah. And I just say, son, it's just that's just life. You got it's something you got to keep working at and get better. It's not gonna always just come like that. Like some people will just come, yeah. but some people really yeah. gotta work hard for it. And if you gotta work hard, that's even better. But Absolutely. just don't get frustrated to where you're downing yourself because that leads you in a downward spiral. You know what I'm saying? It leads you in places you don't want to go because your mind is not mentally healthy and it's not online to make a good decision. Right. Absolutely. So we just have to be consistent. I think. Have good supports, people who are willing to call us on our bullshit, people who are willing to celebrate us, um, people who are willing to love us unconditionally. But again, back to what you and I agreed upon, it starts with self. So I have to love myself and be willing to see myself for myself, call my own bullshit when I recognize it, you know. And ultimately, I think, you know, we have to find, as you mentioned, a passion, that which causes me to burn brightly. And when I can find that, that gives me a reason to live. Mm-hmm. And it gives me something to pursue. You know, that could be collecting bottle tops, whatever. You ain't gonna collect no bottle tops for free. You know, right. it's just about finding that passion and driving yourself to be the best that you can be. Yeah. Well, Craig, when you come to our the end of our interview, and I thank you so much for just spreading a lot of that light on people, and we appreciate you just coming back into the community and giving because there's some people that you know, come back and they're just not able to give because prison has just sucked so much out of them. But yeah, just thank you so much for, for everything, like just being a success story and then again, helping your community and trying to uplift your, your brothers and sisters to get them to the level where we need to be. And we appreciate awesome. all your hard work, especially in North Carolina. Thank you for coming here. Like we need more. <laughs> we need more people like that to get us where yeah, we need to be here. My pleasure, because we are a global community, and um, I shared with some brothers this weekend, we are a fraternity, you know, we are a unique fraternity, like people do in their Omegas and their Kappas and all these other Greek fraternities, they help each other along. Those of us who've been in prison who are trying to do better, we should be there for each other to help each other along, and this is part of my contribution to that, that cause. My life's work is dedicated to helping people who have been impacted by prison. Keep pushing, my brother. You ain't going nowhere but up. You hear me? I appreciate you, sis. You heard? <laughs> always, always. Go ahead. Yeah, people can find me. Um, they can email me at Dr. Craig Waleed. That's D R C R A I G W A L E E D at gmail.com. Dr. Craig Waleed at gmail.com. You can also go on Amazon and check out my books. I have a book, Prison to Promise, A Chronicle of Healing. Journey Beyond, which is a re-entry journal, and Walidism, which is an art form, a book of poetry, prose, and proverbs. And also check out my podcast, Prisons of Promise, um, on most platforms. And to just put my name into Google, Craig Walid, Dr. Walid, lots of material there. Get involved with the movement. You're welcome. Get in the movement. Craig, Craig, we need uh, everybody in the movement. We need volunteers, so reach out to me. Reach out to Craig, support Craig on Amazon, support his podcast. It's called Prison 2. 
Promise. Prison to Promise, and you can do it on it's yeah. on all major streaming. Um, right, and if you're here in North Carolina, then, you know, also check us out, you know, uh, in solitary in prison through Disability Rights North Carolina. We're trying to um, in long term solitary confinement in solitary confinement here in the state. Please join us. It's going to take a whole a whole village to change what's going on in North Carolina, and so we need everybody that's willing to be boots on the ground to come help us change um, solitary confinement in North Carolina. So definitely reach out to me, reach out to Craig, um, and we'll gladly walk you through this journey with us. <laughs> show now, show now. With that, peace. Bye, Craig. Thank you. Later, so stop being All right. All right, peace. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.